I wrote some songs, in fact, some songs which I feel are quite nice, which I'll use on this album. I wrote about four years ago, but uh, it was more difficult for me then to, you know, get in there to do it. And it was the way the Beatles took off with Paul and John's songs, and it, it made it very difficult for me to get in. And uh, also, I suppose at that time I didn't have as much confidence when it came down to pushing my own material as I have now. So it took a while, you know. Welcome to this week's When They Was Fab. I'm Ed Chen. And I am John Stoke. Well, we received some sad news. Don Everly passed. He was 82. Phil passed eight, ten years ago, something like that? I'm not sure. And, of course, the Everlys were really the place that the Beatles were to pick up almost everything they knew in the early days about harmony singing. Absolutely. You know, the the, uh, Paul talks about how they actually kind of cast themselves. John was Don and Paul was Phil and they patterned their harmonies after them. Um, the Everly's were a very special thing. I think it's where the Beatles got the two, two people in harmony thing. John and I were the Everly's, really, mm. when we started up. A lot of people, um, most people when they start up, I think they imitate someone. Uh, and we did. And one of our imitations, really, was the Everly's. The brothers sang together so well, and certainly John and Paul took that and copied it. Well, and then even before that, Paul and Mike would do Everly Brothers songs together, and thinking they had the same brotherly harmony, and apparently they <laughs> did, to a certain extent. In Fourth Thin Road, the two little boys that are two little brothers used to be the Everly Brothers. Oh, right. Oh, okay. yeah. And so uh, we used to do these harmonies. Right. Those are great records that Everly Brothers put out. I can see how they would want to get into them. So who's left? And there was Jerry Lee. This is one of the guys that John listened to on the BBC. You know, when he was a kid, this was one of the rock and roll icons, and there he was. We just sat up in the balcony, and again, I, I looked at his face, and he was looking at Jerry Lee the way a child would open a Christmas present, you know? And uh, after the last song, we snuck downstairs and waited outside of the dressing room. And Jerry Lee walked out of the dressing room, and he said, uh, son, I saw that thing you did with me on Eyewitness News, and I'm, I'm really pleased with the way you... And I said, thank you very much. Um, 
I'd like to introduce you to John Lennon. Uh, John, this is Jerry Lee. And I looked over at John, and he wasn't there. And I looked down, and John was on his knees, just kissing Jerry Lee Lewis's boots. And uh, Jerry Lee uh, tapped him and said, and said now, now, son, that, that, that's not necessary. Little Richard and Chuck Berry have both died fairly recently, and they were kind of the, the last of that old guard. Right. Although I hear Elvis is alive somewhere. Rock and roll, playing music keeps you young a long time, unless somebody kills you. Or, or you do it to yourself, as in the yeah. 27 Club. But uh, a fond farewell to Don and... Uh, Paul wrote a great song for him. Yeah, On the Wings of a Nightingale. That, both the demo and the Everly's version are, are really, really good. Yeah, he did good on that. Um, crafting a song of love for his heroes. So the other bit of news that we got this week, there was a listing in Amazon Japan, and the good folks at Beatle Fan did obtain at least an announcement, if not a pre-press release, on what's going to be in the Let It Be box. Yes, there was one part about it that I was confused about because, you know, there's some question as to what might be accompanying the Peter Jackson film. The obvious stuff would be the rooftop performances and the press release talked about how there would be one rooftop song. I think they meant one additional rooftop song. Yeah, but they didn't say that. So it's like, wait a sec, there, there are three on the original album. Yeah, and the original album is included. You know, I think that sounds like a game of telephone to me. <laughs> Could be. So, okay, yeah, just, let's just go through quickly what they say is going to be in this box. Five CDs plus a Blu-ray. CD1 will be a Giles Martin remix of the complete album. And that will be interesting to hear. It's like, how far can he go? Well, are they going to call this despectorized? <laughs> right. I wonder what he might do with the Long and Winding Road. Certainly McCartney was not happy with the mix. You could keep the elements of the Spectre mix and still sort of do what Paul wanted, bring bring the lead vocal up, bring the band up, reduce down those harps and, and the girl choir, but not eliminate them completely. Yeah. So that's disc one. Discs two and three are rehearsals and jams from the Apple Studio sessions. Now, I figure it, it, they're using the Apple Studio stuff because there's a fair bit that was actually recorded with, honest-to-goodness, recording equipment, not just with the Nagras. Yeah, the, the multi-tracks are, are from Apple, and so you could actually work with the music. Then disc four will be, as we predicted, the Glenn Johns mix, but it's the first Glenn Johns mix. Right, which requires them to later on, I think, add I Be Mine to it. Because yeah. it wasn't all the January, the John's version. And then the rest of it is assorted B-sides, Across the Universe, I Me Mine, and new mixes of Don't Let Me Down, the, the Let It Be single, both versions of it. You know, basically odds and ends. Right. <laughs> We're going to clean up now. Then at the end, like you say, which doesn't sound like part of the press release, it sounds like something that was told to the Beatle fan folks was that the rooftop concert is not included in the box, which may have been a result of restrictions imposed by Disney. You would think that Apple and UME would trump Disney, but... <laughs> right, in the corporate game. I noticed one thing was 
interesting is that they're also going to include the single version of Let It Be. That's great. Yes, absolutely. Three months after they recorded the January 1969 backing track, George returned to the studio to record a new guitar solo, which was overdubbed onto the backing track, replacing his original solo from that session. Jumping ahead about nine months later to January 4th, 1970, George Harrison recorded yet another version of his guitar solo, still over the same backing track from January 1969. So to recap, at this point, George had recorded at least three different guitar solos. When it came time to mix the single, George Martin preferred George Harrison's more restrained April 1969 solo, while Phil Spector took Harrison's raunchier, grittier solo from January 1970. And so that's how he ended up with the two versions. That's the deal with the singles. So we're going to move on from here. So last week we covered all of disc one plus side one of the Apple Jams disc. So this week we're going to finish out the LP proper with disc two and side two of the uh, Jams disc. Now, before we get into it, I'll say I like the Jams on this disc much more than the Jams on the first side. (laughs) Okay, okay. (laughs) <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> we'll come to that at the end, but but I will say that I actually like the pepperoni. It's again, it's too long, but as a jam, that's actually kind of fun to listen to. But now yeah. you're just teasing. <laughs> Now I've watched you sit there. Seen the passerbys all stare Like you have no place to go But there's so much they don't know about Apple Scrubs You've been stood around for years Seen my smiles touch my tears How it's been a long, long time And how you've been on my mind, my Apple Scrubs Apple Scrubs, Apple Scrubs, how I love you, how I love you, in the fog and in the rain, through the pleasures and the pain, on the step outside you stand, with your flowers in your hand, my Apple Scrubs. Apple Scrubs, Apple Scrubs, how I love you, how I love you. Apple Scrubs, Apple Scrubs, how I love you, how I love you, Apple Scrubs, Apple Scrubs, how I love you, how I love you, while the years they come and go, now you Beyond all time and space We're together face to face My apple scrubs
Alright, LP2 starts with Beware of Darkness. The remix is a lot more effective on this disc, possibly because there's a whole lot less of the wall of sound throughout disc 2. Right. This was certainly one of the songs I considered muddy originally. I mean, I thought, there's a lot here. And so the, the remix I like a lot. They did a real good job, and it's fairly clean. There's still a little bit of stuff there, but mostly it's in the backing. Right. The guitar and the vocal are great. Yes. It's a a cool song, so it's nice to have a a really good version of it. Now, this song came about because George had invited the Krishnas into Friar Park. He asked me to to come and live there with a few devotees to help him clean the grounds and get it it cleaned up a bit. So I did. There at that time is Krishna. This is the reflection of it. Does anybody know what Maya means? That which is not. The Maya creates the illusion that you are separate from God while you are actually one with Him. You are a tiny part of Him. Apparently they were fond of warning George and whatever visitors may be there. I I can see them telling this to Eric Clapton. Beware of Maya. It's like, (laughs) I'm just going to not listen to you and go go over to this other room and shoot up for a little bit. (laughs) Good, Hare Krishna, I'm going to hang out with Patty. <laughs> exactly. You know, LP1 has its highs and its lows. It's very good, but LP2, to me, is almost a perfect record. Well, I would take issue with a little bit of that, but it is very good, for sure. Um, we'll get to the one that... That you, that you, that you think a little <laughs> bit differently. Well, that's that's okay. I mean, you know, either way, we both agree that, that this is a, a great album. Oh, yes, absolutely. One of the best, if not the absolute best, of the solo Beatles records. It's funny because he, uh, the whole way it was presented, the fact that he had this backlog of songs. and I mean, there was kind of this explosion of George Harrison and the, the look of him as being a mystic, searching for truth, exploring you know, his religious beliefs. That was all part of the marketing. It was real, but it was this blast of George Harrison. The 1971 documentary on uh, Apple TV makes a point that All Things Must Pass really sort of caught the zeitgeist. You had Jesus Christ Superstar. You had genuine rock music in praise of whichever god they seemed to be praying to right and it was the you know the era of, of what was then called the jesus freaks you know you had oh happy day and, and jesus christ superstar and spirits in the sky that's the point that they make in this documentary and and i think we're just kind of agreeing with them that it's yes there was something in the air and then even though george was not necessarily talking about the christian god although he's not not talking about the christian god you know my sweet lord is the whole thing you know Yes, and awaiting on you all, chanting the names of the Lord. It's not necessarily chanting Krishna. You know, God is in all forms in in his philosophy. The next song is Apple Scruffs, which is really George absolutely doing old school Dylan. (laughs) Yes, he who plays the harmonica here. A little bit more melody than Dylan would be uh, (laughs) apt to provide, but yeah, it's George writing a Dylan song. There were pictures of George playing harmonicas on Mr. Kite. And so I I knew he played, but, you know, when this came out, it was like, ooh, that's a different kind of harmonica playing for George. And I've read that he actually had some difficulty in trying to get the blow suck pattern, particularly (laughs) through his mustache and beard. 
It's always surprised me just how much accommodation George gave to the Scruffs. Yeah. What is that book about? Uh, Carol Bedford's book? Yes, Carol Bedford's You know, they gave him a lot of love. And, and he responded to it and gave them love. There was a relationship there. And, you know, the, the stories of them all, you know, McCartney, after getting married, you know, went out and played Blackbird on his terrace to the girls waiting outside. And, you know, they loved their fans. Well, and, the, and then in turn, the, the Scruffs also, you know, created a magazine and you could hear on the Get Back tapes where John is apparently just cracking up when reading the scruffs and the comments <laughs> about him and Yoko. Yeah, there was a relationship there for sure. This was George's love letter to them and, and the whole story. When George finished the song Apple Scruffs, he asked us to all come in. And of course, we were dumbfounded because we're never asked to come in. We're all sitting in there and they turn on the song Apple Scruffs. <laughs> Apple Scruffs, how I love you. It was amazing. We were all in a little huddle around him. and It was definitely this great little emotional exchange between George and, and the, the girls that waited outside. He handed us this letter. Dear Carol, Kathy, and Lucy, now as it's finished and off to the factory, I thought I'd tell you that I haven't a clue whether it's good or bad, as I've heard it too much now. During the making of this epic album, I have felt positive and negative. However, the one thing that didn't waver seems to me to be you three, always there as my sole supporters. Thanks a lot. I really am overwhelmed by your apparent undying love, and I don't understand it at all. Love from George. It's basically him. Him and Mal Evans. Right. Yeah, the best representation of something like that, I think, is you know the Band Aids the uh, from Almost Famous. That that's very much supposed to be the same sort of oh we're 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 muses, <laughs> right? Although the Beatles didn't actually sleep with any of, of the uh, Apple Scruffs, as far as we know. Although they well. were just horribly underage at that point. That's the <laughs> other thing, you know. You listen to to Lizzie Bravo and you look at Carol Bedford. They were, you know, 14, 15 years old. They were working all pair jobs and various things like that. But go to England and, and their parents were letting them hang out watching the Beatles come and go. It's like, wow. <laughs> yeah, that is kind of wild. But then you think, well, there was a whole city in San Francisco where the kids just kind of went off and lived, you know, and they were young. It's just a different time. So next is Ballad of Sir Frankie Crisp. And so this is George's love letter to uh, his new house. He, he had been living in this small house in Easter, but he, he wanted something bigger. He, he said, come on, look at this old monastery I found. And he picked me up and we went out and looked at what has now become Friar Park. And in those days it was a nunnery. And there were like about three or four nuns left in this huge hundred room castle. And it was all run down. And full of, the grounds were filled with ivy and brambles. And he says, I can get this for so much. I forgot how many pounds it was. Do you think, we should, do you think I should get it? And I said, wow, this would be great, George. So he, he got it. He, he bought it. There is a big house, big grounds, overgrown. And the grounds are pretty well laid out with grottos and stones and gardens. And, uh, so they probably discovered things all the time. Oh, look, Frankie Crisp. Here, here's one, <laughs> you know, and it could, because he, he had sayings carved all through the house. Which George loved. Yes, absolutely. And, 
two holy friars. That's the one that, that we hear the most. You had some monks and they had uh, pans with that it, it had rusted out, and so it was two holy friars. <laughs> right. So, um... And then a lot of lyrics to the tune are just the things that were carved around. Yes. I mean, the melody's beautiful. There's a melody without words. It's just, you know, one of George's great melodies. And apparently Phil suggested, you know, if you change the lyrics a bit, you get covers on this. And you'll make a lot of money, but that's not what the song was. Right. In fact, that's kind of what George says. It, it was what it was. He wasn't going to change it to get a hit or to, to increase the pocketbook. The thing about Friar Park which I didn't know was that apparently through the 1800s, that was actually sort of open to the public as an amusement park. I have read that, yes. Now it makes more sense when you see the 70s videos with George in the boat and cruising along, although yeah. that's, a, that's apparently what he did with everybody who came to Friar Park. The first thing you did was you get on you got on the boats and you went through the caves. Go through the caves and, and the, the stones where it would make it look like you're walking on water. When I first read about uh, Friar Park, I thought, well, it's an 1800s Playboy mansion. You know, <laughs> People would come and the grottos and the caves. I'm not saying that the same sort of thing went on there. Although it might have. <laughs> you know, who knows? Among the other name checks in the lyrics were the, the two caretakers in the house, which is kind of cool. Yes, Joan and Molly. When I first heard it, I thought, well, Paul had a Joan. George now has a Joan. So are they the same person? I mean, I kind of had that worked out. But. It wasn't right, so that's okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, that was just illustrating how stupid I was at that point. <laughs> well, through the lyrics, there's some things which might be non-sequiturs, but the one that caught my ear in particular was matching tie and handkerchief, or, or matching handkerchief and tie. That was also the title of a Monty Python album. Yeah, it was, <laughs> although I think it came out later. Was Python inspired by George, or was it just those were packages that you could go into a department store and buy? Right. Is it just a common phrase? And it's like, well, you know, we might find that Spike Milligan or somebody used it. Who knows? Could well be. Between George and Python, they reverse the order. Yeah, right. One is handkerchief and tie, the other is tie and handkerchief. Well, you know, copyright. Okay. <laughs> and, and then as far as the mix, the biggest change in the mix is they bring up old Mal Evans singing. Oh, I think there's more than that. When I was listening to it, I, I wrote a note saying that Pete Drake's work on this song. It's intricate. And not the way a pedal steel is normally used. He's doing stuff. He was primarily a country steel player, but it's pretty intricate and pretty. And it is much more part of the song because I A and B the the old the two versions, yeah. And in the old version, it's just kind of in the wash. I mean, you hear it when it particularly plays a phrase, but now you can actually hear the picking. All and the I, way through, yeah. Yeah, and I like that a lot. I would agree. You know, again, it's the same thing that we've got about everything, but but that particular part, no, absolutely. And, and then the, the other thing is, like I say, the Mal Evans coming out and, you know, oh, poor Frankie Crisp, and it's like, <laughs> there's no getting away from it here. Yes, and it's humorous, and I never really heard it in the original mix. It was there, but it was low. Here, well, it was here, so low, I thought it was monks. I mean, I thought that was the idea. Oh, you know, that sort of, I don't know, Gregorian mode. And that's what I thought it was all all these years. And so when this came out, it's like, oh, my gosh. Well, and there was no telling who was singing. It could have been anybody in the old version. Here, it's like, 
wait a minute, that's not George. It's like, oh, no, it's not George. It's Mal. And it's nice that Mal gets a little solo here, I guess. <laughs> Take it, Mal. <laughs> I like this one. This is a big improvement to my ear. Well, I mean, again, the whole of LP2 is improved, whereas LP1, you know, some of the old mixes are better. Some of these mixes are better, but yeah. anyway. Okay, so next up is uh, Awaiting on You All, the big pop single on LP2, I think. Right. I, I think he kind of, his book talked about, he was shaving. It was like, you don't need a da You don't need a da And, you know, that was, he didn't have words for what it was, but it was kind of the rhythm and the, you know, you don't need a whatever. Um, well, and, and again, it's one of those list songs. Both George right. and John would, would build these list songs. Yeah, it, it does remind me of a John, you know, you don't need a pony. Yeah, you don't need a. You know, even God, where where John is just sort of listing off these things. Here's George doing the same thing. Yeah, the point of the song is the idea of you chant the names of the Lord, which is what he was doing. The mantra consists of basically sixteen words: Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare, Hare Ram, Hare Ram, Ram Ram, Hare Hare. The chanting beads are made up of tulsi, which is considered to be very sacred and dear to Krishna. So when you chant on the Tulsi beads, you're actually taking the help of the dear most devotee of Krishna, Tulsi Maharani, to please the Lord. The Japa beads, which are sort of the Krishna Hindu version of the rosary, you've got beads on a string. And as I mentioned last week, you actually get a fairly nice set of Japa beads in the All Things Must Pass Uber box. Again, not necessary, but it's kind of cool. The idea is that you are going to be chanting these things, and you, and to keep your mind settled, you just count these beads. Right. Don't pull out the beads in the middle of Beware of Darkness. It's the wrong song. You know, you can do it on My Sweet Lord, but if you did it on What Is Life, it's just weird. I'm waiting on you all. Yeah, and then some of the rhymes are great. Yeah. <laughs> Rhyme, rhyming Jesus with visas. Yes. Yeah, and motors with quotas. Of course, Capital wouldn't print those lyrics originally. <laughs> right. The final verse about the Pope owns 51% of Gerald Motors, which is easily the most quotable line of the whole song, was not printed. Right. And you'd think they would have printed it because, after all, the Beatles were bigger than Jesus. <laughs> well, but George wasn't. <laughs> John might have been bigger than Jesus. But... <laughs> he never said, well, I'm not. <laughs> The last song on side three is All Things Must Pass. Yeah, one of my favorite all-time Harrison songs. There's another instance of George dipping into the Tao Te Ching, which is where he got the lyrics for The Inner Light from. Well, you know... It's not plagiarisms, obviously. It's out of copyright. <laughs> I've always liked the acoustic guitar work on this song, and the way this is mixed, again, just kind of amplifies that. And I like the get back version, particularly when you edit the pieces together so it makes a complete take. It's not bad at all. The Beatles were getting into it. I think John and Paul just weren't quite in the right place to perform it. Yeah, I don't know what the philosophy really was. They were looking to put together a show that they would play live at the end. 
they were thinking of a rock and roll show. Uh, you know, I, I don't know. Maybe they just feel like it fit in. But they did work on it. John spent some time on the organ. And, and that's why I say it's reasonably complete. Right. You know, you edit the pieces together. A, well, they did, obviously, for anthology. But in the end, the version that George does is not what the Beatles did. Maybe what George wanted was what he did. And so it wasn't really coming together with the Beatles for him. Perhaps. Maybe that's the deal. Maybe George took it off the table. You never know. I'm saving this for my album. <laughs> and Spectre's comments on it in that letter before the final mixer are kind of interesting. It's like Spectre questions whether the performance is right. Yeah, and I was surprised. I didn't know that Eric and Bobby did the backing book. Yeah, and Spectre claims that they're a little bit flat. <laughs> Well, you know, guess maybe to his ear. When did he write that letter? Was that just before mixing, or was that still while they were tracking? Uh, that was he, just before mixing. Uh, he does b- mention that, you know, you could do another performance if if you want, you know. They still had the ability to go in and, and record extra takes or, you know, overdubs or whatever if, right. if they wanted to. It wasn't quite that far along, but so they had done a rough mix, and they'd sent that to Phil, and they were, you know, at least trying to figure out what they needed to do a final mix. Right. And that's when his comments are. Maybe after his comments, they went back and fixed the background vocals. Could be. And then Phil did come back, and he didn't actually do much of the actual mixing. They would do the mixes and pass them by Phil, is the way it reads to me. Right. So Phil was less responsible for the actual final mix that appears on the album. Yeah. When you're figuring out George's lines, just pay attention to what he slides into. And what he slides down from. That kind of stuff makes makes it George Harrison. We flip the record. The first song on side four is I Dig Love. <laughs> okay, so this is my least favorite song on the whole album. It's always been goofy to me from the very beginning. Well, it's a pay-on to free love. I get it. Short love, big love. dig i love dig the thing that i really like on this record is the day one version of i dig love and it's more rock and roll and george is using his his rock and roll voice and the demo of it is so superior to the released version that uh i was just really happy to hear it but you can certainly because of the remix you can certainly hear all the stuff that's there (laughs) i almost wonder how this made the record you look at something like beautiful girl it's another song about having sex with lots of women (laughs) you know we had said it before it's like well beautiful girl it's a good song but it doesn't really fit all things must pass yeah okay maybe we'll take a point or two away from this lp but i still think the remix is great and i like the tune yeah this version of the album lets you know that there are these other songs that were there that oh my gosh i mean you could have put cosmic empire or nowhere to go or dara dune you know uh, any of those songs 
Or if you wanted to be in the the moment, you could have done uh, Gopal Electrician on it. Yeah, but I think he wanted to have one song on here which sort of took you a little bit away from the religious aspects of things. Well, I guess this did it. (laughs) There's a quote from Patty from her book which says, well, maybe it wasn't. Maybe George was still thinking with both heads, let's say. And there were other women. That really hurt. In India, George had become fascinated by the god Krishna, who was always surrounded by young maidens, and came back wanting to be some kind of Krishna figure, a spiritual being with lots of concubines. He actually said so, and no woman was out of bounds. It might have been different if I had been a stronger, more confident person. I might have guessed that with his infidelity, he was just being a boy and would get over it. That it didn't mean he didn't love me, but my ego was too fragile, and I couldn't see anything other than betrayal. I felt unloved and miserable. That certainly explains why Patty would fall into Eric's arms. Right. And, I mean, you know, that was kind of George throughout his whole life. Olivia even refers to it abstractly in living in the material world. It's like people always ask the secret of staying married, don't get divorced. (laughs) And that's the truth. But she's very clearly implying that, well... I had things that I could have divorced George over if I wanted to, but I decided the marriage was worth it more than what he did. Right. That's kind of the age-old thing about how people view their relationships. And for some people, it's totally based on fidelity. For other people, not so much. You know, it's it's about the emotional connection. This is your least favorite song on the whole album? Yeah, on the whole album. If I'm rating from top to bottom, this would be at the bottom. Of the songs that he's composed, because we haven't got to, to, to the last bit yet. Then we move on to Art of Dying, which that's a song which had been around since the Beatle era. Right. A great song. It also dates apparently from 1966. Well, apparently there's a version where George sings, uh, there's nothing Mr. Epstein can do to keep me here with you. Right. They like to sneak Brian's name into into songs. <laughs> what about Brian Epstein? And at that point, Brian was the all-powerful manager. He, he would be the guy who would keep you from dying, I guess. And again, this version benefits so much from the, dare I say it, despectorization. It's really good. Because that wash, especially with Eric's guitar, so big. And maybe that's what some people like about it, but... I like this version. Well, and I think you can finally actually hear Phil Collins' congas. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> well, no, this is the song that he did apparently play congas on. It's just that George had mixed them out originally. Right. The story about that, for the folks that, that aren't familiar with it, apparently, you know, Phil knew that he played on All Things Must Pass. Just before he joined um, Genesis, then, he was in a group called Hickory, and then he was a group, I think, called uh, Flaming Youth, I think it was. And oh, Ringo, yeah. somehow he knew Ringo Starr's chauffeur. And George Harrison just started <laughs> making with Phil Spector. That's how showbiz works, all contacts. Uh, with Phil Spector, yeah. he started making All Things Must Pass, and he wanted a percussion player on the track Art of Dying. And Ringo's chauffeur said, oh, I know this guy, you know, Mrs. Collins, this boy. He's a percussion, he's a drummer, you get him along. So Phil Collins was, in, it was hired as the conga player on Art of Dying. And he's not a conga player, and, you know, he's a drummer, and therefore, you know, all day of playing congas on this thing, the old fingers are bleeding, and he thought he wasn't doing a very good job. 
But anyway, he, he said, when the record came out, you know, he rushed out and had a look to see if he was on the credits. There's no mention of him in the credits. And he listened to the track and he couldn't hear the, the Congress. And of course, years later, he meets George Harrison and he tells them the story. And, uh, and George Harrison, they became quite good pals. I think they were working together. Right. George Harrison yeah, said, yeah. you know, that's interesting, because I think I've still got the tapes from that recording somewhere. I'll go and dig them out and see if I can find your conga play. And Phil said, because I always really wanted to know who, you know, must have been Phil Spector who just said, that guy isn't good enough, let's sack him. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, a week later he gets a call from George said, I found it. I found it, I'll send it right over now. It's absolutely amazing. We can hear your congas and everything. So he said, he puts it on and there's our time. And there, they're really awkward and quite bad uh, the, is the conga part, you know, very, very audible. And uh, he listens to this and thinks, Christ, that is pretty shocking. I'm surprised they're not surprised they didn't use it. Then he hears George Harrison's voice saying, uh, can we try it again, Phil, without the conga guy? <laughs> so he thinks, oh, God, so it was George Harrison. And he rings up George and he says, uh, oh, God, I listened to the whole thing and I hear your voice at the end. And George goes, really? How embarrassing. What did I say? And he tells him, you know, and then just a pause. And then George says, actually, I'll be honest with you, he said, I dubbed all that on. So I found the tape. I got Ray Cooper in, and I got Ray Cooper to just play really bad congas. And then <laughs> I did a little thing at the end saying, saying uh, oh, let's try it again without the conga guy. You know? <laughs> I thought, that is such a great story. I love the idea that he's put so much effort and energy into this one gag just to amuse himself <laughs> and, and to stitch up Phil Collins. I thought it was so funny. Phil Collins likes to get mad at the Beatles, doesn't he? You know, there's, there's that other story about him and Paul having a bit of an argument over he had asked paul to sign something one time and paul just sort of went oh, oh look linda little phil here's a beatles fan <laughs> and so that that comes up every now and again yeah i don't know i, I read that story i thought that well i guess paul could be that way maybe i've never heard him being that way it's still kind of funny like you say particularly in light of the extent which george went to not only did he come up with the idea he actually went into the studio and had Ray Cooper do this. Right. Phil also remembered that he had played for track after track. I mean, they, they kept redoing it. And he played enthusiastically and hard. Uh, and then he realizes that Phil Spector has not been listening to him play because he hears Phil Spector say something like, he, he switches down onto the studio floor, you know, with the monitor and says, can I hear the congas now? And Phil realizes that he's been bleeding his hands up just for no reason, you know. But he does the final take. They thank him. He goes home. He's a little bit upset that they don't invite him to go out for a meal with them afterwards because apparently George is going out with Billy Preston. Nonetheless, uh, and, and then the other thing that these lyrics remind me of, Danny likes to tell stories from when he was growing up. Apparently George and his sort of beliefs on reincarnation and the business of what's going to happen after death. Uh, he said, oh, you know, that George Lucas guy has got it right. You know, Star Wars is, is just sort of taking this and making something that the masses can accept. And it's like, <laughs> you sit down and you think about it hard and it's like, yeah, I guess it does sort of match up with, with what George is saying here in these lyrics. <laughs> the Force. And in fact, I guess during the 70s with the long hair, George was looking pretty Jedi-ish himself. <laughs> yeah, you're right. <laughs> I, I don't know what his robes look like, but he I'm sure he probably had some. <laughs> or I'm sure there were some left over from the monks, you know. The monks or the Krishnas, one or the other would have some robes that he could slip into at a moment's notice. 
Yeah, maybe that was one of the things he discovered, you know, opened up a closet and there's a closet full of robes. So, okay, track three on side four is the other version of Isn't It a Pity? Right. I like the other one better, personal taste, and I listened to it again, this version today. And I think the thing that has always kind of bothered me about it is the effect that's on the piano. It's kind of a doubling thing. Not my favorite version of it, but... It's a good song. I think I agree with you. I think I probably like the other version slightly better. But as I said last week, you know, this is almost the way the Beatles might have done it had it been on something like the Yellow Submarine soundtrack. It's not quite a revolver song. It's not quite a pepper song. But there's just enough effects in there that it, it might have fit real well right next to only a northern song yeah now, now i can i can just imagine what the animators would have come up with for that <laughs> right apparently it was john who had said no to isn't it a pity well hmm, you think you felt attacked <laughs> i have no clue but i mean you know, maybe he just didn't like the song yeah but the second half of that which i hadn't heard before is apparently george had offered it to frank sinatra you know, George and Sinatra spent a little bit of time together. Yeah, in 68. The word is that George actually offered it to Frank, although, you know, obviously Frank never recorded it. Right. He'll record Maureen is a champ, but sorry, I don't do that stuff. <laughs> right. I'll wait for something. I can't even imagine Frank Sinatra singing, isn't it a pity? No, I can't either. If that song had been around for four years, you just don't know what kind of permutations had gone, you know, through it. The Hey Jude ending is probably a late edition. It wasn't that way in 66. Well, and there's not much of it here. I mean, you know, there's there's just a very tiny little bit. It doesn't go on forever, and and it's just, it's more a swell than it is an ending. It's a tighter version with the band. That's the real difference. The long version, the Hey Jude version, is almost more of a, a solo performance. This is a band performance. Yes. So Phil's comments on there were uh, that it still needs some additional orchestration, which... Huh. <laughs> well, I, I guess that suggestion got... Uh... Rolled into the other version. Yeah, right. He did specifically mark that as a comment on version two. George explains in his book, I, Me, Mine, that isn't it a pity is about what happens when a relationship hits a down point. He says, it was a chance to realize that if I felt somebody had let me down then there's a good chance I was letting someone else down. We all tend to break each other's hearts, taking and not giving back. The last song on the record, which is quite possibly the perfect way to end this album, uh, is Hear Me Lord. Right. Uh, Another song that he had at least played for the Beatles. He demoed it apparently uh, on the 6th of January, 1969 at Twickenham.
George comes in and says, well, I wrote a gospel song over the weekend, lads. Then John comes back, gospel according to Saint who? <laughs> then George comes back, according to the Lord. It's hear me, Lord. <laughs> and it definitely is a gospel song. Billy Preston is all out playing the gospel piano here. Yeah. yeah. But it still rocks. Yeah. You get the right players and you, you can rock. It's good. And, and you're right. It's a good way to close the album. And Phil in his comments says that the still needed horns in orchestration. Now you can see this Phil and his wall of sound ideas coming in. More orchestra. I was interested to find out that George performed this as his closing set at Bangladesh uh, in the afternoon. And he didn't do it at night. It's not in the film. Well, that's why I really want all the extant footage and audio to come out in if we do get Olivia's promised 50th anniversary of concert for Bangladesh. That's one of the things that we know that they did. And then there's still got to be like sound checks and stuff that have never made their way out. Yeah, I think you and I have talked about this before, but you really begin to question, what if Hear Me Lord at Bangladesh, George didn't like, that he wouldn't want it out as representative of him. And so at what point do you go, we want to hear everything and the right of an artist to go, I don't want to sound flat or I don't want to screw up the solo. Yeah, I agree with you. But I mean, you know, there's a balance between we're past the point that really matters anymore. It's history now. Right. Which is why it's it's allowable, I guess. But it's not going to hurt your reputation at all. <laughs> George Harrison's reputation wrecked by Hear Me Lord. Because you missed a couple notes or because you, this is not your greatest performance ever. <laughs> or you forgot the lyrics or what, you know, whatever it was that, that made him go, no, uh, that's enough. If I had to guess, actually, it's probably time. Concert for Bangladesh, particularly for the second time in a day, it was running a little bit long. Maybe it was time. We just don't know. But it was it was certainly something that he had performed and which came out for the benefit of whoever was in the crowd at that time. There's an, an audience of the afternoon, but right. uh, it's not in the best of shape. You know, for me, the great missed opportunity of that show was to see George and Eric Clapton do badge. Yeah. Uh, that then takes us to side six, side two of the Apple Jams. The first song is uh, I Remember Jeep, which is eight minutes. <laughs> right. Well, you got something good going. John Lennon's on there. John and Yoko are, are doing the hand claps. And you got both Eric Clapton and Ginger Baker. So this was the dying days of Cream. Well, yeah. But it was recorded during... All things passed, so it wouldn't have been cream. It would have been. It was a little bit earlier. This was part of a John Lennon session. That is news to me. I don't think Eric and Ginger Baker were hanging around much after Blind Faith. So you know it would have to be before Blind Faith had uh, burst into flames, right? But there are other people on this that weren't around John Lennon's. I mean, Bobby Whitlock says he's you know, on this song. And... Well, Bobby Whitlock was around in '69. Not at John Lennon's sessions. If Eric was there, he might have come along with Eric. I mean, he was he was living in Eric's house at that point in time. Well, there are just parts of this that don't make any sense to me. For instance, uh, there's nothing on the album that credits Bobby Whitlock playing on the same song with Billy Preston. 
Bobby has this story about he played the piano on this jam, and he had never played piano before. Of course, he was a keyboard player, so I mean, it's not like he he didn't know how to play. The oh piano. yeah, absolutely. But he didn't play piano. I mean, he was an organ player, but he came yeah. in and said that Billy was already at the Hammond, and so you know. But there's nothing, no credits on the album that ever put Bobby Whitlock and Billy Preston together. Yeah. On the same recording. So I don't know. Well, that, and, and you know, by the time of all things, the Moog wasn't around that much, was it? Uh, no. It does say in the liner notes that George was playing the Moog as an overdub. Well, you know, he owned it. Oh, sure. But I mean, it wasn't necessarily set up in the studio where, where you could just jump on it as a jam. The jam fades in. It fades in someplace weird. <laughs> it's not like at the beginning, and it's not like in the in the middle of something. It's just like, okay, we're going to fade in here. <laughs> right. And a lot of it sounds the same as the, uh, the Moog effects that George used on electronic sound. For a long time, people thought that he was just playing the tape from electronic sound but but in the book they do specifically say that george was playing overdubs hmm. well was the moog kept at abbey road that's the question i mean you know, that's another reason to believe that it was actually an earlier session <laughs> ah it's one of the questions yeah i, I personally reject that it's a john Lennon session because I, there's just too many people on it that doesn't make sense that john was playing with all you know, all these people would show up at But then then why would why would John be around? John was not in the habit of coming into George Harrison sessions. You know, he came into one session and and that was earlier. That you know that they, that was even before they were really halfway through recording the album. Where, where does the information that there are on hand claps come in? Uh that's in the book. They specifically say that. Hmm. That John and Yoko are on hand claps. Which also makes a little bit of sense because those hand claps are pretty far up in the mix you wouldn't necessarily have them that high in the mix for any other reason if it was phil collins <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> huh. it remains a question but it's not a great jam it is kind of cool to see eric playing with the moog at the same time you know there's bits and pieces it's like okay but eight minutes yeah the songs themselves have no composer credits and George says it's basically Eric's deal. <laughs> so it's all right. What we do know is that Jeep was uh, Eric's puppy. George described him as a, a funny kind of orangey brown dog with pink eyes. <laughs> L- little devil dog, I guess. Right. So much like Paul, Eric liked to write about his dog. <laughs> That's correct. The second jam, which is actually, as I mentioned at the top here, my favorite of the jams is... Uh, Thanks for the pepperoni. <laughs> right. It's, it very much starts out in Chuck Berry mode. Yeah. And it sounds like uh, George playing a Chuck Berry riff. Some of it's George and some of it's Eric. Right. The way it's played is very much like he did on Roll Over Beethoven. Yeah, exactly. So, and some people claim that he is actually playing Roll Over Beethoven. I don't think so. I think it actually is a jam in that style. And through the whole jam, they do manage to pretty much keep the 50s feel. Right. Well, they would have lost it if it was eight minutes, but they kept it to a reasonable. Yes, when it's five and a half minutes, you can just about get by with it. Right. And this is basically the dominoes. Pretty much, yep. With the additions of George and uh, Dave Mason. So playing the guitar, it's George, then 
Dave Mason, then George again, then Eric Clapton. That's the order, apparently. Kind of an ersatz, uh, the end. The end, exactly. <laughs> so Carl Radel was also there, and, and Bobby Whitlock and Jim Gordon. So Right. It's fun, and it, it's the most cohesive tune of any of the jams, I think. Yeah, yeah because it's it's based on a model, you know, yeah. for everyone to follow. <laughs> like, Back to the Future's Johnny B. Good. <laughs> right. Michael J. Fox, you know. Chuck, it's your cousin Marvin. Listen to this. <laughs> anyway. Well, Eric's probably thinking, you know, between his jams with uh, John at Toronto and George playing Chuck Berry, it's like, well, I see where these guys come from. And Eric Clapton was also a big fan, which, of course, brings us right back around to where we started from at the beginning of the show. You know, Right. 50s rock and roll, R.I.P. Don Everly. Yes. That takes us through the jams. We're we're through the album prop. You know, I don't think we need to give it a grade, but I think if we're if we're going to give it a grade, it's uh, both on the remix. The remix, I would say, is probably a solid A. I would agree with that. Uh, uh, the the album itself is an A plus. The even with a record of jams, the the three record set is an A plus. It's it's one of the great solo albums of the, of the four of them. You know, it's just it's way up there. Yeah. And it's not just because George is sort of filling in with all these songs that he's written during the Beatles. He actually put a serious amount of time and effort into this record. Yeah. And that makes it special. Yes. I think the opportunity for him to do this was just liberating. It sounds like to some degree past productions have been somewhat of a struggle. So the idea that this was his project, his sound, yeah, we'll we'll get into this uh, you know a little bit as we start to move into the the other demos and then the other various outtakes that are that are on the that disc. You mean there's more? We got two more. We got we got day one and then we've got the uh, <laughs> outtakes disc. We got we got two more weeks. We well we've got to fill in until Ringo's EP hits. <laughs> right. Okay. Well, you know it's been enjoyable. I've I've gone back and listened to things. It, it's been fun to to really. A, B, these things, to some degree. And it's, it's not quite as repetitive as the Lennon box. So, you know, we, we do have lots of new things to talk about every week. Oh, yeah. Uh, the Lennon box got, got, by the end there, we were, well, we, we had to combine things for a little bit. <laughs> and we actually may have to combine things on this Let It Be box because, uh, you know, we'll, we'll need to start the get back in November. <laughs> if, if the box comes out October 15th, we've only got... Three weeks to cover the six discs. Wow, we are going to rock. <laughs> Very good. So we'll be back with with more. <laughs> with more. Let, let's see. We're, let's let's go with day one. Okay. Sounds right. good. Yeah, that's uh, you know, and 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 because these are in effect new presentations, a lot of stuff. Uh, this will be a lot, a lot of, of different. I mean, you know, we've thrown in some comments along the way, but yeah, it's it's different enough that first off, it's got different songs on it. Yes, uh, and then even aside from the the new material, the production and the presentation are all significantly different than what we got on the finished record. Well, I mean, as we talked about in the first week of this, you know, day two. It doesn't completely overlap. So, and then also the question of how did they get from there to here? That's the one of the fascinating questions for me because you know, being a recording person myself, the 
the from here to there is always fascinating. And as we said, Danny did a real good job in letting us in on that process. Yeah, I, you know, I commend his work. It's uh, uh, he worked with Paul Hicks. Is that what? Yeah, Bravo. They did a really good job. The one thing I would have liked, although again, it might not be possible, is some of the isolated tracks. You know, there may just be no way to pull anything out of those isolated tracks. Right. Well, so. you know, I'm not going to take anything away from Sean and his his presentation of the Plastic Ono, but, you know, for the most part, it was three, maybe four players, and the whole idea of it was stripped down. This was a pretty complex recording, and I think that uh, they've done an outstanding job. All right. Very good. So we'll be back next week. Next week. See you then. Subscribe to When They Was Fab on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, or wherever finer podcasts are found. Please join our Facebook group, and we could be reached at When They Was Fab and on Gmail. The opening theme was written, produced, and recorded by Jay Young Kim, Beaster Famine Studios, San Francisco, California. Although George sang about the importance of the spiritual world, his purchase of Friar Park and his love of fast cars showed he also had a love for the material world. Money preoccupied him. After all, he wrote the 1965 song Taxman whilst a member of the biggest group on the planet. The seeming contradiction was a criticism that dogged him his whole life. Graham Thompson thinks that all things must pass addresses that question. That record is so interesting, the whole album, is because it's a kind of conversation with George between, you know, the rock and roll life and the spiritual life. When we talk about George being a contradictory character, and he certainly was, it's almost not the point. The point is that he knew that, and he was always striving to be a better person, and I think that's what you hear in a lot of those songs on that record. I tell you one thing, there's sickness going on and there's some good people doing work in hospitals but they got no bread to do it on. Not only are they working in a miserable condition with sick people but they're, they're scraping the barrel for funds to keep going. Yeah.